With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the to... Oscar goes to... Gentlemen, my only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Could have been a contender. Fasten your... I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me... Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to the next best picture podcast. It's time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode nine of the Next Best Picture podcast, a Halloween edition of the Next Best Picture podcast. Uh, If you are listening to this right now, it is currently Halloween. And I've got with me today, Michael and Will. How are both of you doing today? Doing fantastic. Happy Halloween. Hey, how's it going, everyone? So let's just get this out of the way really quickly, because I'm sure being that it is Halloween, our listeners would like to know. Let's ask, instead of the typical, what is your favorite horror film question, let's ask a little bit more award-style question here. Will and Michael, what is a horror film that you wish had been nominated for Best Picture? I'm actually going to throw out 28 Days Later. I think that is a masterful film that transcends all of its genre trappings. And because, you know, there's a large chunk of the internet who won't even call it a zombie film and prefers to call it an infection film because they feel it doesn't even belong in the genre. It's a character-based genre. It's, uh, it's a character-based film. It's extremely well acted. It was innovative in that it was one of the first films ever to shoot digitally. It did incredible spectacle on, I think, a five to eight million dollar budget. It's got a fantastic score. It's heartbreaking. It's cathartic. It does kind of fall apart in the third act a little bit, but it's so good and so inventive in a genre that it seemed impossible to still be creative in. So undeniably, of the ones that have not been nominated for Oscars, I would say 28 Days Later. And Michael? Yeah, horror is not a genre that I'm particularly fond of, but I do like some of the more auteur horror films so one that comes to mind for me is rosemary's baby oh great film yeah even though it did get some oscar love it won ruth gordon her best supporting actress prize but i think uh, mia farrow is absolutely amazing it's a crime that she's never been nominated for an oscar that's crazy uh, john cassavetes uh roman polanski's direction the film itself for best picture i think it's just a masterful film that i don't necessarily consider horror but it definitely has those elements so that's my choice So, this film will not be nominated for Best Picture, so I feel very comfortable in saying it. It is also my favorite horror film since The Exorcist, and that is Robert Eggers' The Witch. 
I love the shit out of this movie. It is still one of my favorite films of the year. I really hope he can get some precursor love on the awards circuit uh, heading into the end of the year here. Will it get any Oscar love? I really do not think so. But my God, would it be incredible if that film showed up anywhere at all? I'd be so, so happy if it did. It's still. I think it's still my favorite film of 2016. I mean, it was such a masterful experience. And I would kill to see it show up in some of the precursor awards for its sound design, its production design, and its cinematography particularly, as well as Anya Taylor-Joy and Ralph Ineson, who just kill it in some of the best performances I've seen in a horror film ever. Yep, 100% agreed. Um, so that's pretty much uh, going to be all of the horror talk on the podcast here. So sorry, Halloween fans out there. Be safe. If you see somebody chasing after you with a Mike Myers uh, costume, assume it's real. I just want to say, too, that so many people over the years have been wishing this for me. So strangers, you know, I go, I'm walking in the street, people say something to me. I go in a doctor's office, I go in a whatever. Elevators, people saying, I wish you should win, you should win. I go for an x-ray, you should win one. What do we got here this week? We had a couple of different things happen in terms of Oscar, in terms of regular uh, news. It's been a very, very busy week for sure. Let's start off with the big one. This news broke when we were actually recording last week, and that is the placement of Viola Davis in Supporting Actress. Guys, big game changer here. Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is, I think obviously we haven't seen more than a few clips of Davis's performance, but she is very popular right now. She won the Tony and Leading Actress for this role, and I thought she would have won Lead Actress until this supporting announcement came to be. So I think, particularly in a less competitive category, unless just somehow the performance really doesn't translate to screen, I think she's got it in the bag. You know, I think Michelle Williams has less than 10 minutes of screen time, and Davis is the narrative. I think we have our winner here. Yeah, it seems locked and loaded at this point, unless something really just unexpected comes along. She's at the top of her game, we saw her lose a couple of years ago to Meryl Streep in the leading actress category for the health. So I think having her here where it's a lot less competitive than this year's lead actress category really gives her, I don't want to say necessarily a boost because I think she would win in either category just based on her name alone. But it certainly opens up the competition for lead and lets her sort of walk to victory in an Anne Hathaway style if it were to be that way. She also says she's in pretty much, if not literally, every scene in the film. She says in the adaptation, they've beefed up her role. That's that's why people thought she would go lead. So it may end up being a uh, pretty similar category fraud situation to Alicia Vikander last year, where she clearly is a lead. And that helps because if you're someone who's in one or two scenes in some of the other supporting roles this year that are actually supporting, you can't compete with someone who has more chances to be Oscar-worthy because they're in the wrong category. But I, I would love to see her win an Oscar, so whatever works. Does it diminish the importance of her winning an Oscar, though, if she wins it in supporting versus lead, in your opinion? Um, I think an Oscar is an Oscar in general, but I understand that there is something more historically significant. There's been a long history of African-American actresses winning supporting Oscars, but we only have Holly Berry, who's won a lead Oscar, correct? Yes. So 
I, I'm a little saddened that it appears that record won't change this year unless Ruth Nega somehow did it. But at the same time, it is still an Oscar for an Oscar-worthy actress. And also, it's worth noting that her decision, or the decision to move her into supporting, apparently came from her after seeing a cut of the film. Yeah, Scott Rudin, I think it was in her contract that ultimately she would decide what category she ran. Also, while we're on this topic, um, Fences is apparently done because it's screening for, it's got a SAG screening in Los Angeles next weekend. So maybe it'll still announce to go AFI. I think it's a little weird. We haven't seen it do any festival running, but it will certainly be ready in time for the SAG Awards because people will be seeing the whole film as of this time next week. I heard he was going to lock the film right before the election, so that all makes a lot of sense. It does, and you know, speaking of locking the film and having it all finished in time for it to be screened, and also sticking with it being a Paramount film, uh, Paramount actually uh, also showed footage of Silence this past week, and we got a couple of Twitter reactions. They said it was a brief 45-second clip. There was no dialogue, all images, but they said, though, that the imagery was stunningly beautiful, mesmerizing, and we may be looking at our first trailer. Guys, I'm not going to lie. I think that Silence, Fences, and Patriot's Day, uh, to a lesser extent, Patriot's Day, but if there's anything that is going to knock La La Land out, it's got to be one of these three. Am I right? That's basically all we have left, so I don't see it being anything else. December is a tough time to release a movie that uh, many haven't seen because of getting it to guild members and screeners, getting them all distributed. But that said, if Fences is finished this early and starts screening, you never know. It just has to be good enough. Yeah, I I post a a poll on Twitter and I asked a couple of people what their thoughts were on the idea of maybe a split, La La Land taking picture and Scorsese getting Oscar number two because it seems to me that the departed Oscar win, although it was, it was it was probably the best directing job of the year. It was also seen as Marty is way overdue. We need to get him his Oscar, and since then he has turned out, in my opinion, some of the best work of any director at his age could possibly put out. So there might be a groundswell of support to get him a second Oscar on merit as opposed to overdueness this time around. But here's what I keep saying on that. You know, we obviously can't say that splits are uncommon anymore because we've had three in the last five years. But I do think they only seem to happen when either something bizarre happens, like Ben Affleck just misses out in a nomination, or when the Best Picture winner doesn't have as flashy direction as the ultimate Best Director winner. You know, so in the case of Spotlight, Tom McCarthy wasn't going to win because for the most part, that's very quiet, uh, subdued direction. It's not really obvious direction. That's not a criticism. It's just when it's competing with uh, Mad Max, George Miller's work in Mad Max and Inaritu's Oscar-winning work in The Revenant, it just it doesn't seem as obvious a directorial achievement. That's why a split happens like that. You know, I won't say that Steve McQueen's direction in Twelve Years a Slave was subdued, but um, 
Quaron's was really obvious direction, direction. That was really obviously a director's movie. And I think Silence, there's, I mean, I haven't seen it. No one has. But I'm hearing comparisons to Kundan, or Kundan, however it's pronounced. And that's quieter direction. That's quieter Scorsese direction. You know, it's, it's a period piece. I'm not expecting Scorsese's obvious direction which is he usually stands his best chance at winning on his obvious direction with lots of dolly ends and swoops and quick cuts. I'm expecting this to be more quiet, painterly work. You know, it's, it's not probably going to be his most energetic stuff. So it seems odd when, from what I've heard from La La Land, Chazelle is bringing his really obvious flashy direction, the same sort that he had in Whiplash with lots of long tracking shots and quick cuts and zooms and endless coverage, it seems odd that really obvious, flashy direction like that wouldn't win, particularly when the film is a Best Picture frontrunner. Michael, let me ask you a question here. What do you think about when it's not so much the best directing, the best cinematography, the best costume design, etc., even in terms of the acting races, it's more of what is the most the most costume design, the most uh, direction, the most in terms of performance, the big, loud spectacle, I guess you could say. How do you feel about that? How do I feel about it happening in terms of wins? Or I mean, because that's I mean, because like, like Will just said a second ago, you know, it's not so much the quieter direction that gets the win. It's the the big, flashy direction. Now, when you're looking at it objectively, does that mean that it's best. I, I look at Mad Max's editing last year and how everybody was like, oh, it's going to be Mad Max or the big short uh, that's going to win. Well, why was it those two? Well, in many ways, it was because it had the most editing in both of those films compared to something like Spotlight. But which one is then really considered the best in that regard? Well, I don't think there really is a definitive best. I mean, when Oscars are handed out, it's a group opinion is the majority wins for the most part so i think when you look at the breakdown of the members these five nominees are what they consider the best and i don't think you could really criticize anyone for saying they liked one over the other i don't like we all have different tastes and different ways we interpret art and different things so yeah i mean something may be considered too over the top for someone and you may look at it as more rather than best that another person might look at something you consider better and think that's way too toned down to be considered the best. So I really don't think there's like a definitive one. I just find it very interesting how a lot of these wins over the past couple of years, especially in film editing, it's not so much – everybody seems to equate like something like best film editing uh, with being the most edited is what I'm you know getting at here. Well, let's look at 2014 when Whiplash won. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know the two of you really love Whiplash. Did you consider that to be the best editing of 2014? Actually, believe it or not, I considered Birdman to have the best editing. And that wasn't even nominated. Okay, yeah, so there we go. There's a difference in that, which we all have. Everyone's entitled to an opinion there. And uh, Whiplash won the Oscar. I think it was uh, showy editing, but personally, as someone who wasn't very enthusiastic about the film, I don't think I would have called it the best editing. So, again, a lot of this is all subjective. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we, uh, the way we predict is we have to subtract what we think is the most deserving because at the end of the day, if you let yourself become personally biased, 
you can't think like an Academy member. And at the end of the day, editing nominees are decided by editors. So that's how you have quieter films like The Descendants get nominated for editing because obviously people who edit for a living decide, okay, this isn't showy, but it works. But at the end of the day, the majority of the Academy voting body is not editors. It is actors and producers and screenwriters. And they are not necessarily people who recognize immediately all of the nuances of quiet editing. They see a Mad Max, they see a Whiplash, they see a lot of editing, and that's what stands out because it is flashy, it is obvious. So if you don't know that category as well, you're just going to go with what is the most obvious. That's why whether or not I think it's what should happen, I do tend to predict the flashier film to win. And that's why I'll say that about uh, La La Land, it's flashy direction, which seems like it would make it a reasonable winner in the eyes of voters who see it because it is the most. Makes sense. Interesting. Now, let's look at a film that's starting up a campaign right now as a big, loud, obnoxious film. And I can't believe the route they're starting to take with this campaign. And that is Sony in Sausage Party. So... We talked about this a little early on here about how it could be a contender and best animated feature, best um, song for Alan Menken. But I think they're going for it for screenplay. I even heard possibly even picture like like what what are they thinking over there over at Sony? I think they're just having some fun. They can't seriously think that that's going to happen, can they? I think you also, we need to consider that this big awards push was announced after Billy Lynn disappointed. I think there's, I would assume that Sony was expecting their big player this year to be Billy Lynn. And then all of a sudden, everybody dropped that out of most of their non-sound mixing and sound editing category predictions. So I think all of a sudden the studio decided to go back to the drawing board and thought, what could get us still a lot of awards coverage this year? And Sausage Party is a very divisive film, but it is a film that received, and if they campaign it right, will continue to receive a lot of conversation because it's unique. Whether or not it's good is debatable, uh, but it has its fans, and if they campaign it right, at the end of the day, I think the most important thing for getting a nomination in at least animated film and song, I can't imagine it getting in anywhere else, is just if somebody remembers it when they fill out their ballot over a G-Kids film or uh, one of the Studio Ghibli films, if it's sausage parties in the back of their mind on the day they fill out the ballot, which it might be since we're seeing t-shirts sent out advertising sausage party as like a third-party candidate, you know, it could, it could get the nomination. How's it going to work if they have a lunch or a dinner for Sausage Party on the campaign trail? That's just going to be very awkward for everyone. They'll serve sausage. Oh, that'll, I mean, they'll have so much fun. They'll, I mean, they'll, they'll have a huge, probably German sausage menu or something. I'm sure <laughs> that they'll make a big event of that. You know, they have all these dinners right now. I saw they had an entire Johan Johansson themed dinner recently in Los Angeles for Arrival. I mean, I'm sure there'll be a bunch of big dinners for Sausage Party. They are going out. I know, but for a film about how food has feelings, I I don't know. That might be a little awkward for someone in attendance. (laughs) Oh, it's fantastic. I I, I love it. I think it's very interesting. I think it's definitely something to watch out for. That's the kind of film that I feel that if critics 
include it in their best animated feature lineup, best original song lineups. And it starts to gain traction and still becomes a part of the conversation. Could it happen? Yeah, I think it really could happen. Do I think the film is good enough that it deserves it? Not necessarily. I mean, I found it shocking when I saw it. And I kind of dug it for trying to do something more in terms of its message. But I didn't think it stuck to landing all that well. But you know what? Good on them for trying right now. You know, it's like, why not? And let, let's clarify, we are, we're speaking strictly in the animated film and song categories. We don't, oh, none yeah. of us expect it to go anywhere else. Oh, no, absolutely not. 100% no. Um, sticking with uh, placements and categories right now, there's a lot of concern right now over Loving and its screenplay uh, placement. We talked a little bit, I believe, last week, or maybe it was offline. I don't, I'm not, I, I can't remember these things about Moodlight. Original, adapted, apparently now it's going original, even though it is based off of a play, but because that play wasn't put, uh, wasn't actually put into, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? That play wasn't, it wasn't staged. Yeah, there you go. The play wasn't staged. Uh, the film is now considered original, not adapted. So what's the deal with Loving now? So Loving is complicated. I don't think we've seen Focus Features add their official category placement they're going with online yet, but Loving is based in large part on a 2011 documentary called The Loving Story. The director of that documentary is one of the main producers on Loving. Loving is also based in large part on an article that the Michael Shannon character in the film wrote. So most people have it in their original screenplay predictions right now, but I think there's a decent chance we see, you know, the screenplay rules are weird with the Academy, as we saw with Whiplash, and we've seen with many films, The King's Speech was based on a play, but it's deemed original. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes, but I think the studio would be wise to campaign loving and adapted, because it's a much less competitive category right now than original is, and I think actually they might end up being forced to campaign it and adapted because of the reasons I listed above. Interesting. Yeah, I've uh, put it in my original lineup for the time being because... Uh, I'm sorry, I put it in my adapted lineup for the time being because original is so packed this year that I don't see how it gets into that category. Maybe it doesn't deserve to. I haven't seen the film yet. I know some people have, and I know some people are kind of... You know, they say it's good, it's not great. Uh, you know, it seems like one of those films that on paper should be an Oscar player, but in execution, it's it's fine. Yeah, I, I don't see people listening on their top 10 as one of the best films of the year, though, when all is said and done. But we'll see. I mean, I love Jeff Nichols. So any, you know, respect he can get or any, any just anything positive that comes out of this for him, I'm happy for him. And then... Finally, we also have word that Patriot's Day is set to close AFI, so we'll finally get some word on that film. It turns out that, I mean, this is like, the, to me, the, you know, the, the sneaker, the, the film that could just swoop in and just screw everything up for everybody, it seems like. Because Peter Berg has just been, in my opinion, on a roll with these last two films. And to release now another film this year, along with Deepwater Horizon, 
people just might start to catch on to what some of us are already catching on to, which is this guy's this guy's turning over, a, you know, a, you know, turning a new corner here in his career, and he's putting out some really quality films. Could Patriots Day resonate with everybody? I mean, who knows? It might it might capture the American sniper vote, as far as I'm concerned. We believe it's going wide in that same weekend that Zero Dark Thirty and The Revenant and American Sniper have done in January, right? I mean, that's that has worked very well, particularly if it grosses a lot of money. It, it could hit right in the feels. And I think even if it doesn't get a Best Picture nomination, it has a great supporting cast. J.K. Simmons has an Oscar history. John Goodman has a narrative. And then you have Academy Award winners Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who could also show up in there and in a up-in-the-air original score category could easily get a nomination as well. Sound? Editing? Yeah, editing too. Yeah, definitely sound. I think we're wise Once you're all done, it. this could be a large hall of nominations here. Well, even regardless of Oscars, I think it's going to be a very big uh, box office player. So... I guess we're just going to have to wait and see how the film itself plays at AFI. But, yeah, very interested to see how it does. Um, Let's take a little bit of a break here in the news for a second. Let's interject some fan questions right now, guys. Uh, This one's coming from FilmGuy619, and he, I like this one, he asks, name one movie that you can quote nearly every line of. Hmm. One movie that I could quote every line Or nearly. You know what's funny is, this is a weird response, but over the years, I have a lot of friends who we enjoy making fun of particularly bad lines from George Lucas's Star Wars prequels. So of (laughs) all the films I can quote, instead of films that have good writing like Sorkin Films or David Mamet, I can probably best quote awful dialogue from the Star Wars prequels. Don't make me kill you. <laughs> Anakin, my allegiance is to the Republic. The, whole, the, the sand line, you know, I hate sand. It's coarse, <laughs> it's rough, it gets everywhere. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I got Okay, I got one, I got one. I'm gonna really blow you guys away right now. You guys ready for this? Alright, here we go. Hmm. <clears throat> I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back, and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What? Gandalf, see what? White shores. And beyond... A far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad. No. No, it isn't. Lord of the Rings is my favorite movie of all time. If you guys haven't figured that out by now, I could literally, I could probably quote the Elvish, I think. That's how obsessed I am with those movies. That's pretty funny because I've only seen the Lord of the Rings once. So, I mean, it's amazing that you could do that because I don't think I could think of a single line off the top of my head except for... uh, my precious line. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you forget about steak and breakfast? How can you ever forget about that? Um, Pete Jackson, that was actually one of the... Uh, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but ja- that was one of the most impressive things about those adaptations. He took some dialogue that didn't really seem like it would read well on screen, and he made it lively and funny. I mean, there are quite a few quotable lines 
in what is essentially medieval and fantasy English. So I, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I can't quote entire scenes from the movie, but I do feel that, Matt. And I was actually listening to the soundtrack the other day while working, and oh, those movies are so good. They really are. They truly, truly are. Okay, for my most quotable movie, uh, I don't know if this is a, considered a cheat or not, because it's been such a part of my life ever since I've seen it, uh, not just in film form, but also on stage. But I'm going to go with Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, yeah, you were just talking about that. Yeah, I just saw it on Broadway again last week. It was my fifth time seeing it on stage. Or actually, no, sixth time. I mean, it's just been such a part of my life ever since I was young. I've seen the movie a million times. And the film and the show are so similar. Like, it's dialogue taken line for line from the original Broadway production and used again in different revivals. I listen to the soundtrack all the time in the car, so it might be a bit of a cheat to add a musical in because I know the song so well. But hey, it's a movie, and it's just something I could probably quote every line of. And for a film that's so personal, I'm happy to say it's one that I remember a lot of. Nice. Nice. Have either of you seen it, by the way? You don't hear about it so much now, aside from a certain era. Once, a couple years ago. No, I, I have not. Okay, I'd really recommend going back and watching it, because I know you aren't as crazy about musicals as I am, but it's just a really well-made film. The cinematography is beautiful, the performances are fantastic, and of course, coming from myself, it's a little more personal to get some of the elements of it, especially in the later half of the film. But just in terms of filmmaking, it's a really breathtaking experience in all three hours, and Norman Jewison directed it, so you know there's some credit behind it. And, uh, oh boy, do I love that. Yeah, no, it's a really solid film. Will, I highly urge you to check it out, especially if you can find a Blu-ray copy of it. It really looks stunning. Oh, the Blu-ray is fantastic. And let me say, it is so relevant to what's going on in the world today. It really is. So if anyone thinks it's some old, stuffy, 1970s period drama, you're mistaken. It is funny it moves along and it really has a whole lot to say that will make you think about what's going on uh another question here comes from k bailey java 2 and this one took me a little while to think about the question is what is the best year for movies of all time in your opinion now we tend to look at the past through the prism of the oscars or at least that's how i tend to do so i do as well so for me, sir, I, I can't say which year definitively, but I can name a couple years that definitely jump out at me. Um, one of them is definitely 2007. Oh, yeah. 1999. 2010. Um, and you know what? I'll even venture to say last year. I think I think 2015 was a great year for movies. I mean, think about everything we had last year. The Big Short, The Revenant, Star Wars, The Martian, Steve Jobs, Carol, Mad Max Fury Road, Brooklyn, Room. I mean, my God, it's just unbelievable. Straight out of Compton, Inside Out. I could go on all day about last year. 2015 generally left me cold as a year. There were a lot of films I thought that was good, that was well made. There were very few films that left me passionate. The way my favorite films in 2014, 2013... And 2010, 2012 did. I would actually say 2015 was a very disappointing year in film for me. Uh, it was overall good, but very little great in my opinion. 
Uh, I would. I mean, let's go back farther though. If we're speaking through a prism of Oscars, I think 1974, 1975 were phenomenal years. Oh yeah. Um, 75. What do you have? I think Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, um, One Flew One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, and Barry Lyndon. Yeah, Barry Lyndon. 74. You have the two Coppola films. 79's a really good one too. You have all that jazz, Kramer versus Kramer, Apocalypse Now. That's a great year. Yeah. But uh, I think for mine, uh, 76 is a really obvious one in terms of Taxi Driver Network, All the President's Men, Rocky. Oh, yeah. But one that's also cited again and again, and uh, we don't hear about it as much today, but I'd like to go back to it. 1939. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. I mean, how can we forget that? That's everything. Yeah. Which the Best Picture nominees that year where the winner was Gone with the Wind, so deserving, obviously. Dark Victory, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Wuthering Heights. I'd also like to put my foot forward for uh, 2001 uh, and just signal out a couple here that jump to mind. Black Hawk Down, Moulin Rouge, Fellowship of the Ring, Memento, um, Gosford Park, I think, was that year, or was it the next year? Yes, Gosford Park was 2001. Yep. The thing about the early 2000s, at least for me, looking at it, is when I look at the top 10 lists I've put together, the top five films are amazing, and then the bottom five are uh, I'm still pretty good, but they don't compare to the level of those top five, at least for me. Like, when I look at 2002. What for you off the top of your head? Oh, wait, 2002? 2002, for me, I go, like, Chicago, Far From Heaven, About Schmidt, The Hours, Adaptation. And then after that, it just sort of drops off. Oh, no, 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 not for me. I I love 2002. I thought that was an awesome year. I mean, I love stuff like Spirited Away and Catch Me If You Can as well. Road to Perdition. But uh, The Pianist, of course. Pianist, yep. Lord of the Rings, obviously. Obviously. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I really dig 2002. Let me ask you guys this question though. Are there any years that you thought were particularly awful? Yeah. Uh, 2008. Oh, now it's, it's, Oh, 2008. I loved. So think about though, if you try to make your lineups, there, some of my all time favorite, or at least my favorite films, the 21st century came from that year. But once you get below, you're talking about films that drop off. There's not a lot overall in the year. I really, really like In Bruges, The Dark Knight. Uh, I know it gets hate, but Slumdog Millionaire. I love Slumdog Millionaire. And Wally. And then you have films like Milk that are very good and uh, Gran Torino that I like. But then after that, it's hard to find a lot of really good stuff that year. I disagree. The Wrestler, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Two words. Mama. Oh, God. Mia. Oh, God damn it. How did I know you were going to say that? What about 2005. That's a pretty pretty bad year, too, I would argue. Yeah, 2005 is pretty weak, although it does have one of my favorite films of the decade right at the top there, Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a masterpiece. But no, that was a pretty terrible year. I'm going through the archives here, seeing what I've listed for 2005. I'm also going to say this, too. In 1998, that year was so, so thin for me that my own personal top 10, and this is this is going to shock a lot of people, includes at least one guilty pleasure and one film that is good but not necessarily a film you would find on a top 10 the guilty pleasure is armageddon and the other film is enemy of the state 1998 is interesting because there are some good films but they're not the films that you would expect 
uh, people like even critics to embrace. I remember that was uh, the last year Gene Siskel put out a top ten list before he passed away, and his number one film of the year was Babe, Pig in the City. Which is actually a pretty solid movie. Yeah, I think that's an excellent film, to be honest, but you don't expect that to be on a lot of top ten lists. So the type of films that were coming out that year, I mean, there were a lot of great ones. My personal favorite of 98 is Primary Colors. Mm, that, that was a good one. But uh, yeah, there's nothing that jumps out as like a huge, huge uh, favorite. I know a lot of people have Saving Private Orion, but after that, it sort of drops off. That's interesting that you mention it. I do really, I love The Truman Show. The Truman Show is a top 50 of all time fa- film for me. And um, I, I am a big fan of Saving Private Ryan. I am conflicted on how I feel about America. The Thin Red Line is my favorite Malick film. Wait, oh, yeah. Thin Red Line's great. Yeah, but going back to 2005, that's a, probably the weakest. Yeah, 2005 was a really, really tough year to get through. <laughs> that was really tough. Um, last question. J.R. Parham asks, what is your favorite below-the-line category at the Oscars. J.R. Parham, you're in luck. I like and care about the below-the-line categories of the Oscars, maybe more than any above-the-line category at the Oscars. Techs are what got me into following the awards. So I would say editing and the two sounds are my favorite categories anywhere at the Oscars. And I will also say I often go five for five in predicting the nominations in those categories. Yeah. I would say, as somebody that went to film school and someone who just appreciates photography, cinematography, and as someone who also has experience with editing, film editing, and as per our conversation earlier in comparing the most editing to the best, I I do find that there is a certain quality in film uh, in film editing when it's not necessarily the more cuts you know the better it is there's there is a mythology behind film editing that sometimes does get lost in the conversation but yeah i think that i think it's just two very fascinating categories cinematography and editing the below the line categories always interest me because i didn't i did not go to film school i don't even work in the industry necessarily aside from uh, what we do here with the oscars so to see the people working in their craft and doing it so well, I have such respect for what they do and how they do it. Uh, so my favorite category at the Oscars, uh, aside from Best Actress, Above the Line, which is my favorite there, my favorite Below the Line category is Best Costume Design. I think there's some really interesting uh, designs that we see, and a lot of them, while they tend to be period, it's also really interesting to me to see contemporary films like The Devil Wears Prada get in. So... I'm always interested to see what they have to offer there. Is there any film that you've seen this year that's more modern uh, film, uh, you know, set in current times that uh, either has jumped out to you guys on your own personal ballot for costume design yet? I don't know if it would. It's not contemporary, but I think the closest to contemporary so far would be uh, The Nice Guys, which is set in the middle of the 70s. Yeah, that's a good choice. Oh, I'm sorry. There is one that's uh, more contemporary. It's not going to get any Oscar love, I don't think, but it really blew me away in terms of uh, what it had on display. A Bigger Splash. Ah, great choice. That's a good choice. For me, I would say 20th Century Women and 
You know what? I think I, I really like the costumes in the lobster. Yeah, I yeah, that that would be kind of a her type choice in this category. I like the costumes in High Rise and Everybody Wants Some a lot too, which are both seventies and eighties set films, but more contemporary than the seventeenth or eighteenth century period garb that typically populates this category. I don't know how I'm gonna pick a favorite this year because even looking past the contemporary choices the more period ones that we've seen in films like Cafe Society, Hail Caesar, and Jackie, they're really immaculate, and we still have more to come after that. You know what category I want to give a special shout-out to for entertainment's sake mm. is uh, makeup and hairstyling. Because that category is almost impossible to predict, every single year... The, sh- the 100-year-old man who fell out the window and disappeared? Well, but not even, like, before the nominations, every year the shortlist of seven leaves off one to four films that people expect to be shoe-ins for nominations or even locks for the win. Always something misses out. And then it, the nominations themselves tend to be bizarre, too. So it's very unpredictable. I, I still can't believe Lincoln and Cloud Atlas didn't get in four years ago. Cloud Atlas blew my mind that that did not make it. It's un, you know sometimes when we do have these um, narrowing down periods here, and you get the short list, uh, there, there's some decisions sometimes that just make me scratch my head in amazement. Like um, uh, this is visual effects, but like the year Man of Steel didn't make it, and uh, it was like, wait, what? You know, and I know some people have certain ideas about that film, but. Yeah, it's very, very interesting sometimes how our hopes immediately get snatched away when we have these uh, these processes where it just gets narrowed down. Imagine if they did that for acting categories, how much we would all be outraged. Oh my gosh, it would be nuts. Well, I want to thank everybody that submitted questions over to us here. Uh, please keep sending them in via Twitter. And let's head back into um, some more uh, just film news in general here. Hey guys, this is JD from the Incession Film Podcast. Every week on our show, you can join my co-host Brendan and I as we review the latest films that's out in theaters. It also inspires us to discuss a top three list of some sort, and we have a lot of other fun movie discussions as well. It's always a blast. And we also have a show on Fridays called our Extra Film Podcast. This is a show that gives us the space to talk about the latest indies and art films and other classics that we normally just don't get to talk about on our main show. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and more. In fact, you can just see everything about us, including our social medias at IncessionFilm.com. So join us every week. We'd absolutely love to have you. Uh, so we have... Oh, Will, our buddy Tom Rothman is getting the PGA Milestone Award. How do you feel about this? It's an interesting choice. I mean, Sony has helmed a lot of major films. Um, I think probably Matt would be the one more passionate about this, though. Why don't you go ahead and uh, I I do remember some tweets about this. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, so Tom Rothman is a producer that you can definitely find out a lot about him online. Uh, he was previously at Fox and was pretty instrumental in sabotaging uh, the X-Men franchise 
and really, really screwing that up in many, many cases, especially with X-Men Origins Wolverine. There was also a huge, huge conflict in regards to Deadpool and getting that made through many years, and it also spilled over into uh, Josh Trank's uh, Fantastic Four reboot. So there's... uh, The guy has made some commercially successful films, but he is clearly one of those it's all about the money studio heads that just is like the epitome of evil to anybody that cares about the art in filmmaking. Like under his tenure at Fox, uh, you did have how much he was involved is up in the air. But on some level, he was involved with Lincoln, Life of Pi, Castaway, Master and Commander, Black Swan, Walk the Line, Juno, The Devil Wears Prada. I mean, yes, my opinion on him because of how he handled X-Men is complicated, but it's not an undeserved producer award. You know, he has made a mark. I agree with that, but look look at what's been going on with Sony ever since he moved over there. Steve Jobs, the Ghostbusters reboot. You know, Sony is definitely... I mean, we just talked about Billy Lynn earlier and how they don't seem to have a dog in the race anymore when it comes to awards. So wh- wh- why do you think all that's happening? You know, it's it's clear why a lot of this is happening. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want this to become like a, you know, like a bashing by any means. Um, he's getting the PGA Milestone Award. Moving on. Uh, Battle of the Sexes is test screening in L.A. this week. This is the film from the writer and directors of Little Miss Sunshine, starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell, was it? Yes, Steve Carell. And this is set to release when? It'll be ne- it'll be a release next year, and many people think that if Emma Stone doesn't win for La La Land this year, she might for that next year. It's written by Simon Beaufoy of Slumdog Millionaire fame and is directed by the Little Miss Sunshine directors. So that's, I would say, some nice pedigree to back it up. It's got a good supporting cast with Andrea Riseborough and some other strong actresses. So, yeah, I mean, we may or may not hear word on how the screenings go in L.A. this week, but it's a film that apparently is close enough to being done that it is screening and... One to keep in mind for next year, at least. Michael, you a Wes Anderson fan? I love Wes Anderson. You know he's got a new stop-motion animated pet dog movie in production? I do. I've heard about that a long time ago, actually. I uh, thought he was taking a break from it to work on his new one starring Adam Sandler. Yeah, apparently this one is actually in production. He might be doing them both simultaneously, as we know that stop-motion takes a very, very long time traditionally. So, Sure. Well, he did a great job with uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Love that movie. I love it. So I, I'm a big, big Wes Anderson fan, and I'm excited to see whatever he does because it's always so creative and energetic. With uh, And it still keeps its meaning by the end. It doesn't just get lost in the technical wizardry that something like the Polar Express or any other Robert Zemeckis project would. Mm. It still keeps some substance in there. How about you, Will? You like Fantastic uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox? I did. It's not one of my favorite Wes Anderson films, but it was an admirable take on the material, and it's cute. You know, it. I, I liked it, and I, I will look forward to seeing anything Wes Anderson does in the future. 
What are our favorite Wes Anderson films? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I hate I hate saying it after Will just said that, but Fantastic Mr. Fox. What about you, Will? The Grand Budapest Hotel, un- undeniably. It okay. had his best overall written character in the form of M. M. Gustave, and it also went beyond the humor that most of his films have had to really hit me in the feels. Uh, in second place, I would say Moonrise Kingdom. I love both of those so much. Yeah, I really love a lot of his recent stuff. Uh, I really loved Grand Budapest, but I think it would actually rank a fourth on my list of favorite films. I know that sounds a little lower, but it just goes to show how many great films he's had. Uh, I think my favorite would have to be Royal Tenenbaums, just because I think that ensemble works so well together. Oh, yeah. And I love a lot of his choices in terms of cinematography, and I love the use of the Charlie Brown music in certain scenes. Yeah. So that's my favorite. Well, we'll see what he has here. Uh, Moving into some sequel territory for a minute here. Uh, We got word that Guard Particle is the uh, next Cloverfield movie and it will be an interconnected universe. Um, I dug 10 Cloverfield Lane, uh, third act withstanding. I think a large part of that did have to do with the performances by Goodman and uh, Weinstead. So I look forward to seeing more on that. Uh, Here's a film, though, that I don't really uh, know your thoughts on, guys. How did everyone feel about the Tom Cruise, Doug Liman film, Edge of Tomorrow? I was a huge fan of Edge of Tomorrow. It took me by surprise. It was one of the best blockbusters of 2014. You know, I, I kind of wish they'd left it alone because I thought that film was wrapped up nicely. But it worked far better than it should have. So I will probably go see any sequel if they can capture, recapture the magic they had that first time around. I thought it was entertaining. I really didn't get all the love for it. I thought it was just a fun action movie that has some very clever bits to it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm glad that it's getting a sequel because I know it wasn't such a huge financial hit at the time, but maybe it just, maybe this is a sign that it discovered, or an audience discovered it on home video and... It's moving forward. We'll have to see. They did retitle the original for home video, I remember. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. What was it called? It was called Live, Die, Repeat on home video. Hate that title. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that was the original title. But it, uh, Mike, I would say in response to that, I think something it had going for it more than a lot of other studio blockbusters, it's really well edited, and I don't just mean in individual sequences. I mean in how the film is oh, structured. Yeah, absolutely. On a technical level, everything was great. It's also funnier. You know, it, it has a lot of unexpected comedy. Tom Cruise kind of makes fun of himself, which is interesting. I really like Emily Blunt. Yes. Love her in that. That was a good year for her. She had that and Into the Woods. The film is actually, going back to what you were saying before, Will, about the film being wrapped up, it's actually a prequel Instead of a sequel. I mean, it is a sequel, but it, the story will be a prequel. So I don't think this film will include Tom Cruise again. It may include Emily Blunt. We're not necessarily sure at this current time, but we know Doug Lyman is back in the director's chair for it at the very least. So definitely exciting things along the way for that. Incredibles 2 has been moved up. Toy Story 4 has been delayed. So there's some movement going on over there at Pixar. Not necessarily sure how positive i am i really want to see sequels to toy story 3 and the incredibles but i mean every time i keep saying that about pixar they always surprise me so 
Do we all love The Incredibles? Because I think it's no. astonishing. Yes, very much. Nope. I do not. Really? I, I am one of those people. I, I Actually, you know what? I might be one of the few people on this earth that did not understand all the love for that film. You didn't think it was a brilliant comment on, like, 1950s suburban society? I... And go ahead. The McCarthy era? I, I recognize all this. I, I definitely understand it. It just fell flat for me. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I just it didn't, I didn't connect to me the same way it did for others. I know I've been a little vocal about how I'm not crazy about the superhero genre as a whole, but I'd be willing to call this uh, not just my favorite superhero film, but one of my favorite films ever, maybe. I, I really, really love The Incredibles. It is such a brilliant send-up of superhero tropes that no spoof has ever been able to do as well. The cape thing, for example. With Edna Mode, who's doing Edith Head. Yeah. Oh, God, there's... I don't want to see a sequel to the film, because I think it should be left well alone. But I, you know, I... Mike, you and I often disagree, but this is one time I've got to really side with you. I think that's a top three Pixar film for me, easily. Yeah, I'd put it right up there. Absolutely. Well, when we do a maybe a Pixar retrospective or new Pixar films coming out, hell, even when the sequel for Incredibles is coming out, I will revisit The Incredibles and we will continue this conversation. I also want to bring this up. This is not necessarily news so much as this has been announced before in the past, but here it is. Everybody's favorite director on this planet, you bowl. The director of such classics as... Oh, the, the list is endless. I mean, you have Alone in the Dark, House of the Dead, basically every bad video game adaptation you can think of. In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale, Postal. They're, I mean, and they're not even bad enough to be funny. Occasionally they are. Typically just bad. He has got to be – I mean there was definitely a time where he was referred to as the worst director in Hollywood. And now he doesn't even work within the Hollywood system. He hasn't for years. He's gotten all of his films financed um, through other uh, production companies outside of the States. He's uh, funded some of them himself. And it seems like he's finally hanging up the boots Tucking away via director's megaphone and calling it a career. He is announcing his retirement from filmmaking. And all I can say to that is good riddance. I will say, in response to what we just said, last time a critic really called him out, he uh, invited him to an, into a boxing ring and punched him in the face. So uh, let's all keep that in mind as we prepare to diss you bowl. Alright. Well, if he invites us into the ring, I'm not going, so one of you will have to go for me. I will I will <laughs> go in your place. Well, me and you, Bull, we can have a trial by combat. It should be fun. Okay. Alright, in our last segment here, we're going to review the trailer to the new Shia LaBeouf film, Man Down. Here is the trailer for that film. We got this. He's my battle buddy. We kicked the doors together. We took enemy fire. It's just not a relationship you understand. If you haven't been through it, I guess. Is there a reason you don't want to discuss what you saw in that room?
Well, yeah, I was not on board with LaBeouf's performance at first, but I will say, accent aside, that final scene, he looked like he was doing a pretty damn good performance. Look, I think there's a way to do a war film that feels timely and relevant and just urgent in a sense. I think Catherine Bigelow has given that to us twice. And as much as I didn't like Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, I think that at least had some potential. But this just looks like a middle-of-the-road nothing that we haven't seen before. I'm not a big Shia LaBeouf fan. and he I know, Will, you just praised his uh, performance from the trailer, but it didn't really do anything to convince me that it's something I would want to check out uh, if I were just a casual moviegoer looking at this. But it should be said that I just did some research. This film actually premiered in September 2015. Yeah, and it has a zero on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> with a three out of ten average. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> the uh, Variety Review says, an appallingly manipulative psychological thriller which scolds audiences for not caring enough about our veterans while counting on the well-meaning message to excuse this otherwise awful mess of a movie. Matt, where did you hear about this? Because I have never heard about this until you mentioned it. I I just look at Fandango trailers on YouTube all the time, and this just happened to pop up, and I watched it, and I was having flashbacks to Breaking Bad, as uh, that's where I've heard the song before. That's where I've heard the song before. Really? Yeah, and... Um, I was wondering where I recognized that from. You're right. I've seen every Breaking Bad, and I, I don't remember when that was played. It's the part in season two where he goes up to the guys in the uh, parking lot, and he's like, stay out of my territory. And it's like, the, the song closes the episode. It's freaking badass. Anyway. Okay. Shia LaBeouf, I appreciate everything that he's starting to do as an actor. I really liked him in uh, uh, Fury. I really think that he is starting to really come into his own he's taking on more um diverse projects really trying to get himself away from the transformer series and you know what everything that's going on in his personal life outside of the acting business you know aside from that i think he's i think he's you know he's not great he's okay i mean it sucks that the reviews for this film suggest uh, otherwise uh, because from the trailer, he does look like he's going for broke here. But I thought the cinematography actually really looked really interesting for a war film. At first, I thought it was something that was shot by Bruno Del Benel, Um But it, it's actually, it's not. Uh, but it reminded me of the kind of lighting that you would see in something like um, Inside Lewin Davis or um, Harry Potter and the... Uh, what was it? The the, the Half Blood Prince. Half Blood Prince. Thank you. There's so many Harry Potter films. Um, it had that high key lighting, which you don't normally associate with a war film. So I thought that at least was aesthetically interesting. 
but like we said, the zero percent Rotten Tomatoes speaks highly. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this is a film we'll hear about a lot. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad LaBeouf is trying to continue to establish himself as a serious actor. I'm not entirely sold on him as a dramatic actor, but he did impress me some, somewhat in Fury. And by the end of that trailer, he looked like he was going to impress me in this film, even if the rest of the film didn't. So there's something to be said for that. What's up with Gary Oldman lately? Because he did, he did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy five years ago, which he was so fantastic in. And then since then, it's really been nothing but the occasional cameo in like, The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, I saw him in Criminal this year, and that was one of the worst movies I saw. It's like there's nothing really of substance. Robocop, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. There's... He, he is and always has been a character actor. I mean, people were excited when he got a big leading role in Tinker Tailor because the bottom line is for years he has been that guy off on the side and he's a chameleon. I mean, he doesn't really do leading man work for the most part. Uh, you, he was great in JFK. You know, he's, he was very good as Sirius Black. He was good as Commissioner Gordon in The Dark Knight. But he, he's not really a leading man. And at the end of the day, you do what you got to do to make money. I mean... Not to divert the conversation for a moment, but remember back in 2008 when all the talk on The Dark Knight was centered around Heath Ledger and there was a lot of people talking about Gary Oldman possibly also being a contender for supporting actor for that film? Was there? I don't seem to remember that. I'm not making this up. I swear to you that there was a couple of people that based upon the final scene of that film with him, uh, Bruce Wayne, Dent... Um, that that final scene between the three of them that they thought that his performance could possibly get something in there. But, of course, it wasn't meant to be. I just find it really funny that um, there was a time where it seemed like he had like all these fans from the Harry Potter days, from the Batman days, and now he's kind of back to doing what he did in the 90s again, just showing up as like, oh, there's Gary Oldman. Oh, look, it's Gary Oldman. The difference, though, is that there's a drop in quality in the types of films and also in his uh, commitment to the performances as well. I don't think he's ever bad in movies, though. Like, even in otherwise underwhelming films, he didn't have... Well, I actually really liked Dawn of the Planet of the Apes as a studio blockbuster, but in a role that he had very little to do, he was good. I mean, there wasn't much for him to do, but he, he, was, he was good. I mean, he, I don't think he phones it in necessarily, but... All right. Well, let's lead it up to the listeners to decide. Listeners, drop us a comment when this episode posts. Let us know. Do you think Gary Oldman is starting to suffer from the Robert De Niro syndrome? And as he gets up there in age, quality of projects, performances is dwindling, or is he still the same badass Gary Oldman that we always used to know? Until next time, Will, where, do, where can they find you on Twitter? You can find me at Mavericks Movies. And Michael, where can they find you? As always, over at Mike Movie. And you can find me at nextbestpicture.com. Thanks very much, everybody, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast as a part of nextbestpicture.com. We will see you all next time. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.